Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Bergman, or as he is better known to most of us, Samuel Shem. Dr. Bergman is clinical professor of medicine and clinical professor of psychiatry at New York University. He completed his medical training at Harvard and obtained a PhD at Oxford University. He has achieved great success as an author, having written The House of God, its follow-up Mount Misery, and multiple other novels, plays, and nonfiction work. We are excited to talk to Dr. Bergman today about The House of God sequel and his thoughts on the current state of residency training. Thank you for joining us today. Why don't you call me, uh, I like being called Shem, so call me Shem, all right? Because I buy my pen name now more than ever. Just call me Shem. Shem, what drove you towards yeah. medicine originally? Well, uh, kind of uh, circumstances. I always wanted to be a writer, and uh, I went to Harvard College, and uh, I failed my first English writing class, so I figured Harvard knew best. I had no talent, and so I studied uh, uh, psychology and pre-med, and then I was lucky enough to get a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford in 1966, and I started writing then. I figured this awful teacher that failed me couldn't get me anymore. I was 3,000 miles away, so what the hell? And I started writing, and uh, I also started a PhD teaching cockroaches how to lift their legs, which frankly, was kind of fruitless. And then uh, in 1969, on a long road trip from Oxford all the way down to the Sahara Desert, driving through the desert, I had an epiphany that I really uh, didn't want to uh, be a scientist or a doctor, really. I wanted to be a writer. So that was fine. And, uh, you know, the Rhodes Scholarship was coming to an end after three years. All of a sudden, I was faced with a really easy choice, actually, which was Vietnam or Harvard Med. And rather than killing people, I thought maybe I would try to save them. I'm rather unusual, I think, in terms of a path, either for a writer or a doctor, because I basically uh, went to medical school to make sure that I could make a living. I, I had the brilliant, actually, thought that writing is so important to me, I didn't want to have to do it for money, because then I would wind up in Hollywood or TV or some crap like that. And so uh, I wanted to have a job that would give me time to write. And I had already been accepted by Harvard Medical School before I went to Oxford, so that's really why I went to Oxford. and then. The this is all the path to being a writer. I like medicine. I loved surgery. Actually, I absolutely loved surgery. I would have been a um, a surgeon, except you know there would be no time to write. There are almost no surgeons who have written novels that are known that have lasted. I mean, they sometimes write short things. Most of them write nonfiction. And I have a fiction brain. I don't have a nonfiction brain. So I, anyway, I was in a dilemma. I didn't know what I could do in medicine that would give me the time to write. And then in the last year of medical school, I uh, happened to take a course in psychiatry. And I thought, and I really liked it. And I said, hey, wait a second. I would learn about character, and that's good for writing. And I would hear stories, and that's good for writing. And I wouldn't, and I'd have my mornings free. I wouldn't have to go until the uh, afternoon. And so that kind of sealed the deal. And, you know, one of the things I've realized, and this is, I think, good for any doctor to know, that, you know, things, things in life are decided by the, the, the slightest flicker of a butterfly's wing. And in this case, with me, that year uh, when I graduated from medical school, it turned out that if you wanted to be a psychiatrist, you didn't even have to do any kind of internship. You could just go into psychiatry with knowing nothing about how being a doc about being a regular doctor. But I said to myself, so I could have just gone right into my psychiatry residency and skipped the House of God. And uh, instead, I said, well, you know, I've come this far, 
I really want to learn how to do medicine, actually do it, because I had to have a job. And I wanted to be able to go anywhere in the world and do it. That's the wonderful thing about medicine. It's so broad. It goes from molecules in rats to countries, right? And uh, I wanted to make sure I could, I could uh, find a way. So the, the, the reason I say a butterfly's wing, if that, that only lasted for a year or two where you didn't have to do an internship to be a psychiatrist. And when I got to the, to the Beth Israel Hospital that year, 1973, 74, uh, I was so, I was, you know, the, the, the whole year was filled with what I call, hey, wait a second, moments, which are moments when, you know, you say you're walking along the street and you see somebody who's asking for a dollar and you walk past and then you say to yourself, well, wait a second. Why didn't I give him something, or why did I give him something? There were so many of these, hey, wait a second moments in my internship that something was unjust or cruel that by the end of the year, I said, hey, wait a second, uh, somebody's got to write about this, and I guess it's going to be me. So it was just by chance that I actually uh, was exposed to the first thing that really stimulated me like this. And that was my first novel. I had never published anything before. I would like now like to kind of segue into the dissection of the day and kind of continues to what you already started. Your book, The House of God, exposed us to some of your experiences during your internship. How much of this was exaggerated or, or was this very close to uh, your experiences? Exaggerated? It was underplayed. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's just frame this a little bit. I think one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is that one of the most important things to, to realize is that we think we're kind of in control of what's going on in our lives, but we, we don't realize how much we're being pushed along by these big historical movements. And for me, and, and the guys, because they were all guys, uh, except one in the Beth Israel Hospital uh, internship class. We grew up in the 60s. We learned a couple of things in the 60s from what Nixon was doing, basically, in the Vietnam War. I mean, it's nothing compared to the absolute crap that we're going through now. But uh, what we learned in the 60s was a very valuable lesson that has shaped my life, which is that if you get together, if you see an injustice, and you get together and take action, you can, you can have an effect. You can change things. And we got together, et cetera, and we helped put the civil rights laws on the books, and we stopped the Vietnam War. So me and my buddies, when we went into, we were very, very idealistic when we went into uh, the Beth Israel Hospital to really do good medicine, and we were all of a sudden confronted with the uh, conflict between the received wisdom of the medical system and the call of the human heart, of what we thought was right. And so we resisted. And you can, you can see the, the House of God novel as a way of resisting to an unjust or cruel uh, hierarchical power, power over power, as opposed to power with power. And so when you ask it, you know, when you ask how much of it was exaggerated, well, not that much. You would be surprised. Some of the things that you might think were the most exaggerated were not. What's, uh, well, you know, I can give one example for those of you for the listeners who know the House of God. You know, there's this, toward the end of the book, um, no, actually, in the book, there's this, ep there's this episode, this scene where there was a big gas crisis in America at the time, and we had a patient who was a truck driver who uh, stood, who waited in line in the cold for a long time to get any gas, and he came in with uh, microcryoglobulin, whatever his cryoglobulin anemia in his in his uh, in his toes. He had a toe, a frozen toe. So. Uh, we, this is true. So the, the, uh, the chief of medicine uh, was doing a rounding with us on the patient, 
and uh, you know, he examined the patient and all that stuff. And then he went down to the toe, and there are eight of us around. And uh, he 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 kind of bent down and did something to the toe that nobody could quite see what he did. You know, some said blow on it, some said push it around, others said suck. And then then he he straightened up and he asked Mo. The guy's name was Mo. It really was Mo. Mo the toe is in the book. And uh, he asked Mo the toe, "Hey, how does that feel?" And Mo said, "Not bad, buddy. But while you're at it, could you try the same thing a little higher up?" Now you can't believe stuff like that happened. You know, that was just one of the funny things. There were a lot of awful things. So, you know, I I I mean. Yeah, exaggeration is is a funny term for a writer because what my editor said to me once was, you know, when I really went way out on something or other, she said, you know, you're better when you're just a little bit off real, a step off real. So, yeah, some of it is exaggerated. Most of it is absolutely telling the truth with a little humor and sex. And that was the book. Medicine has changed over time, obviously, um, and training has changed since um, you did your internship and your residency and all of that. A lot of times we hear this generational disconnect where some of the physicians who have trained in those earlier times and have been through kind of what you depict in the book, saying that those of us in training now have it kind of easy, we're a little bit soft, and they kind of view it that way. However, your book has stood the test of time. You know, I read it um, during when I started residency and I it was so relatable because I feel like we're still we're still going through some of these similar experiences. So what is your view on that? Do you think that training has changed all that much? Do you think that things have improved or um, do we still have a lot of room for improvement? Well, that's a good question. It's such a good question that. Um, it led to my writing, just finishing now and just selling it. It'll be out in a year, finally sell it, writing the sequel to The House of God, you know, bringing back a lot of the same characters I, uh, to get bringing them back together, you know, sort of now. Uh, I could tell you the title, but I'd have to kill you afterwards. I, I don't want to get locked up yet, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, so I'll talk about, I'll talk about, uh, and, and that has to do, that novel has to do with now. Basically, and as the uh, uh, as the narrator says at the beginning, Roy Bash, the same narrator, says, "I'm writing this because uh, he's looking back on the experience. I'm writing this because there was. Uh, it's about a time when medicine could go either one way or the other, and this is sort of current medicine that I'm talking about and writing about. And the choice of medicine at at, at that time." was whether to move toward more humanity, more humane treatment, or to move toward money and screens, which mean computer screens. Money and screens, and then, he, and then he says, which is money and money. Since we know, all of us, that the electronic medical records are billing machines, it's very interesting that the public doesn't know this. The public thinks that that this is helping in their healthcare. I'll I'll read something from that later. Remind me. But anyway, so that's you know I have a lot to say about modern medicine, and I think we doctors have really, really abdicated our power by letting people manage all this money and squeeze us and having us do these stupid screen things, uh, which you know. Interns and residents spend 80% of their time in front of every day. The interesting thing about the, and, and ask me again about that book. I don't want to go all, all the way there right now. But the interesting thing about the House of God, it's the 40th year. It's 40 now, going into its 40th year. And guess what? It is more popular than ever. I mean, I never even thought to get it published, you know, and nobody wanted it back then, got a lot of rejections, and uh, there were no ads, very few reviews, and the thing that that, uh, made it work is that, oh, and I got a lot of crap from the older generation of doctors when I I wrote it, it was really quite bad, you know, 
I get asked to be a speaker at a medical school by the students. And then uh, I, a week later, I get a letter. There were letters in those days. Uh, say, sorry, we're going to have someone from within the institution at this time. But I, about five years ago, I got a call from, I, I had been out of medicine for quite a while. I'd been a psychiatrist for 20 years or something. And then I just decided I would just write. You know, I was just writing. I didn't really have another job. And uh, I got a call from NYU Medical School saying, would you like to be a professor of medicine in medical humanities at, the, at uh, NYU Medical School? So I said, well, wh what do you want me to do? You know, just, just out of the blue. And, I, and they said, we want you to teach. And I said, well, what do you want me to teach? And they said, dummy, we want you to teach the house of God. And, and so all of a sudden, I was thrust back into medicine after many years, and uh, I, I was, you know, amazed by some of the things that people can do, especially surgeons, actually, and immunologists, stuff like that, uh, hemonk. Uh, but I was absolutely, I had that same uh, feeling that I had in the Beth Israel Hospital, in the House of God, which is, hey, wait a second. Somebody's got to write about this, and I guess it has to be me. I was delighted to be able to write about modern medicine. It's not about NYU. Uh, NYU is a terrific, terrific place. I, you know, they've just gone for free tuition. That's just one of the great things they do. But it's a kind place and a and a place that people love working at. So, so for four years now, I've been teaching a seminar on the House of God to. Um, uh, medical students and doctors, they, anybody can come. It's six weeks, uh, once a week for six weeks, an hour and a half. And you know something? Uh, I don't let them have their phones or computers. It's an hour and a half without a break, and the, stu and the students are riveted. You can hear a pin drop. So that it was a great affirmation for me that what I'm writing about, the, the details are different. The systems are now different. They're corrupted more with money and screens. But the essence of what I wrote about is still is they still respond to. It's a, it's it's really wonderful to see. And the other thing I just have to say, and I'll say it because when the House of God came out, I was really uh, treated very badly by the uh, by the establishment, by the older doctors, because it didn't. It didn't ring true to them. It rang true to the other 90% of medical students and residents and doctors. So I, I, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of nastiness toward me that I never, sh it's true, but I never should have told it, which is, of course, a, not a very good argument. But after, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, Publishers Weekly, published, which is the big publishing magazine, published a list of the 10 best satires of all time. And The House of God was number two. Uh, and you're going to ask, well, as I did, well, what was number one? Well, number one was Don Quixote, and number three was Catch-22. And I thought to myself, what the hell is so good about Don Quixote? You know? Modern medicine has, as I say, I think the real challenge right now for all of us in medicine is to do something about this monetization, which has the doctors at the bottom, both in terms of, you know, the kind of the kind of uh, participation in 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 uh, in, mon in the money made, but also in having to deal with the screens. Actually, let me let me just uh, I w I'll read just a short. You know, just a page that's in the, that's an author's note in the novel, the new novel, that de that describes what I'm talking about better than I can talk about it. But this is, I think people, I think this will resonate with people. And the reason I'm emphasizing it is because we doctors have to do something about this. We really do, because I mean, doctors, I I mean, they are going psychotic. Literally, a friend of mine dealing with, I think it was Epic. And uh, they're retiring if they can get out. They're, you know, su su some uh, there's a statistic that doctors, the suicide rate in doctors is higher than the suicide rate in the military. I mean, you want to talk about burnout. 
as someone in a recent good article said, uh, it's, burnout is not a very good term because what it is, is there is there an ethical, moral trap that we doctors are in because we can't practice the way we want. Anyway, let me, this is just a page about how doc, the doctor visit has become something really, really strange. Your visit to your doctor has become satire. You walk in, lucky if you get eye contact, and sit across the desk. Your doctor is trapped, hunched behind a computer screen, back or shoulder to you. The doc asks a question. You answer. The keyboard goes click, click, de click, faster and faster. On and on it goes, and you find yourself in the patient's dilemma. Do I keep talking or wait for a break in the action? Usually the next question. Is he or she still listening or not? The new definition of a good doctor? One who can contort his or her body to touch type while still making eye contact. As you keep waiting, two questions may enter your mind. What is she or he doing? What you don't know is that your doctor is sitting there in front of that screen seething because he's forced to sit in front of a screen seething instead of what he wants to do to talk and listen and be your doctor. He spends 60% of every workday, at least six hours, in front of that screen. Family doctors spend an additional three hours at night at home during pajama time digging out from under the pileup in the screen. This is the doctor's dilemma. Secondly, why is he or she doing this? You might think she's doing this because it will be better for your health care. It may not be. It may even be worse. Worse for your care and, for sure, worse for the care of your doctor. It's only better for the money, the healthcare industry. The machine, you see, was not primarily designed for care, but for billing, to make as much money as possible. We doctors are caught in this mess. We're not only treating the patient, we're treating the screen. And it's not that your doctor wants to turn his or her back on you. It's the healthcare industry that's turned its back on both you and your doctor. Uh, just to answer... The last part of your question, I think it about you know I think it's very relevant to surgeons because the uh, you know the, this limitation on hours I think is what you're probably talking about and um, surgeons actually have resisted it for many reasons and I think think uh, some of that is just I think one of the results of it for you know internal medicine and other specialties is that the medical students and residents don't really get a sense of being able to continue with patients. You know, you, you, when I was there, you, you admit, admitted the patient, you stayed all night, and you worked all day the next day. Surgeons actually only had, had usually had, uh, they were on every other night. And so now that's, a, that, you know, that's not the case. And a lot, of, a lot of the new young doctors are going into emergency medicine, things like that, which don't have any continued patient care, they are going for lifestyle rather than what often brought doctors in, service, service to patients. And uh, the interesting thing, since this is a surgical podcast, is that surgeons are the ones that really do have more continued, more continued work with patients, I mean, following through after operations and stuff. I have great respect for surgeons. Uh, you know, I had a hip placement a long time ago, and I became friends with the guy who did it. And, uh, it's, you know, I would have been a surgeon, as I said, if I could have uh, written on the side, but I couldn't. Long answer to a big, to a short question. Burnout. This is, uh, you know, one of the uh, hot things, hot topics in the in the medical community. Although it's not a new phenomenon. Why do you think that it is at the forefront now? Oh, oh, but it is a new phenomenon. All the statistics, all the statistics now that I've read, uh, like the one about suicide, are, you know, are increased. I mean, doctors always had high rates of divorce, you know, alcohol and drug addiction, depression, you know, all of that stuff. But these are off the charts now. I mean. As I said, suicides are really, in terms of a profession of a, of a of a work group, it is it is new. 
I think, you know what, I mean, and I've read, and there's, there have been some articles about this. There's a, there's a wonderful article that uh, I would recommend. Let's see, I think I've got it here. It was published in STAT recently on July 26th. STAT July, Physician, the title, Physicians Aren't Burning Out. They're Suffering from Moral Injury. And that was really interesting and captured what I'm trying to say. What they're saying is that the takeover of our profession by, you know, idiotic, greedy non-doctors at, 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 you know, almost every position that they can get into and the absolute trauma, it's the only word for it now, the absolute trauma. And as I said, mixed, mixed picture in terms of taking care of patients of the electronic medical record is really we're we're in a, a moral vice because most of us really, really didn't go into medicine just to make money. You want to do that, you know, go work for one of these, you know, off the charts, uh, you know, hyper capitalistic, uh, you know, go work for, for Morgan Stanley or go, you know, be a Paul Manafort or whatever you want to make money. That's not the reason you're going to medicine. Really or not. You really want the saddest people. This is the good news. We go into it because we really want the satisfaction of helping someone through their suffering. Even by do, even doing even researchers like to have an aim of oh this is going to help that, so that the burnout is is comes from the central desire of us doctors to. Uh, do some good in the world, basically, and make a living, a reasonable living, and being put up against the incredible financial uh, pressure of insurance. Insurance companies are the, are, are are you know one are a main, are the main culprit, uh, and and you know that's what that is not burnout. It's what anyone would feel in a system that they're being squeezed every day by part of what they don't want to do. They don't want to spend, you know, 15 clicks to write a prescription. They want to, you know, which takes, or 20 clicks actually sometimes, or more. They don't want to spend 20 clicks, uh, 8,000 a day. They don't want to do that when they could, when they, in the past, they could write a prescription in seven seconds. The, the issue, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You have to go to the central, central issue. Doctors do the work. We're the workers. And we let the corporate interests tell us what to do. But we, we do the work. Without us, you know, they can't exist. Medicine can't exist, right? So, I've always, I mean, look, the only real solution is to have uh, um, a... Uh, the national healthcare system, which every other uh, industrialized country has. And, you know, the rich people can do their, you know, the private hospitals. I mean, look, take, a, take for example, Australia. I've been to Australia three times. You know, there's a, there's a public system and a private system. And I was, I was talking in a, at the public hospital, and my friend said, you know, the care at the public hospital is better than at the private hospital. You know, so the burnout is because we're getting squeezed. And the answer is to get together and take action. And, uh, you know, look at look at uh, the world and look at history. There's no, there are only two places in the world, Holland and Switzerland, that have a national for-profit healthcare system. And the reason why they can survive is because they're so incredibly uh, the, the profit margins are are so small by law that you know you can't make these gigantic uh, numbers that insurance private insurance companies can do here. So yeah, well it's inevitable, and doctors have to keep standing up for it. That the basic thing that's got to happen is you have a Medicare system for everybody and a private system alongside, like in every other industrial uh, country.
so for everyone who doesn't know, at the end of the house of God, it's nicely laid out the laws of the house of God. And there were 13. And then you, um, a few years back, added four more laws. And I'll just say them here. So one was connection comes first, um, learn empathy, speak up, learn your trade in the world. Are there any more? Oh, any more new ones? Yeah, I was just, are there any more that you've thought about as you're, you know, as you're seeing this change and with the EMR and patient-centered care and even evidence-based medicine, as all of these new layers to our medical practice get added on, um, have you thought of any new laws to add to that list? Well, um, actually, there are, there are some new laws in the sequel, and they... They really, um, I mean, there's a lot of, as, as I, you know, I mean, I don't want to make this sequel seem like it's all about, you know, some esoteric subject. It's just about the, the fat man and the, the, the guys getting back uh, to do, to form a clinic that where the fat man wants to put the human back in healthcare, you know, with all these machines and stuff. The, and, and Roy and Barry, this is the same thing. It's told by Roy, of course, this tale. Like it, like it was in the house of God. And he's with Barry years later and they have a daughter. And the fat man is, you know, still the fat man. And, and Chuck and Hyper Hooper and Eat My Dust Eddie in the run are some of the characters. Uh, there are new characters. There are women doctors in this, thank God. There, there wasn't, there weren't any women in basically any, any reasonable women, um, in the house of God in the doctors. And uh, what happens is, you know, Barry, Barry has some laws, a couple of laws. And these are laws that came out uh, when I've been out, you know, going around lecturing and having, you know, trying to help people who are in these situations. Trying, you know, I go to a medical school or a hospital or something all over the world. Let me go back. The most important law that lasts on the house of God is number 13, the delivery of medical care is to do as much nothing as possible, right? The delivery of medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. I mean, this goes against the surgeon's, uh, you know, gaff in the book, you know, a chance to cut is a chance to cure, you know, and all of that. But in the new novel, and I've been saying this for years, as I, as I said, is, is, is to really talk about the imp central importance in health of good connection, right? I mean, what I talk about when I go out to talk, and I always am looking for gigs if anybody wants me, is I say, you know, first of all, the reason I write, there, there are two reasons why I write. Number one, to uh, uh, write about injustice and see if anything can be done. And number two, to write about the danger of isolation and the healing power of good connection. The danger of isolation and the healing power of good connection. Why did we go crazy in the house of God? Why did Potts commit suicide? Because he got isolated. I mean, as the book goes on, all the guys get isolated from each other, right? And uh, each of us gets isolated from our authentic experience of the system itself. We start to think, I'm crazy for thinking this is crazy. And that's a very bad place to be. And the other piece is that we all, in those days, because we were on call all the time, we got isolated from people outside the hospital, our loved ones. Well, that's changed, as I say, with the, with the hours restriction, there's a lot more time outside. There's a better lifestyle. The thing that I focused on really uh, carefully, and with my wife, Janet Surrey, you know, is that rather than measure of a person's psychological health and growth being in the self, in the I, the measure really that's more important is the measure of psychological health and growth is in the quality of the connections or the quality of the relationships. And that's a much more a model that comes out of women's experience than men. And one of the examples I give is a surgical example when I talk about this. The old-time surgeons would have a patient, and they'd say, and the patient would come in, and he, it was almost always a he, the patriarchal test, they'd say, uh, I did the test, and I'm going to operate on you. And the patient usually said, okay, you know, I'll take you. Now, 
mostly we're still in the uh, I did the test and you can get a, a second opinion if you want. And what's that? that? Both of those are in the IU. The IU is the, is the, uh, is the uh, turf of uh, lawyers, you know, adversarial. That's their job, right, unfortunately. So what would be a different way to say it now? And some, people, some surgeons do. The, the surgeon would, might say, we've done the tests. Let's talk about what we're going to do. What's the difference? Well, in the last example, he inserts the we. We did the test. Let us, that's two, talk about what we're going to do. So all of a sudden, he gets out of the IU. He actually uses the we. Well, what's different about that? What's the patient going to say back? patient's going to say, well, I think we should do X. And what that does is fascinating. Surgeons, you should try this. The word put out there by both of them says there's a relationship here, right? What's the main reason that surgeons get sued? You know the statistics. What people say is, I didn't have a relationship with him or her, right? So the shift to the we, using the we in conversation with patients and with others is very necessary. Now, out of that, when you focus on connection rather than self, one of the laws that Barry comes up with, as she, as she joins in with this endeavor in the book, the first thing is connection. Connection comes first. Think of a new patient. If you, know, if you connect with the patient, you'll hear everything. If you don't connect with the person, you won't hear anything, right? Now, the second one also has to do with connection, which is it's not just what you, it's not just what you say or do. It's what you say or do next. None of us get it right in relationship, either with patients or, or loved ones or whomever. We are always making mistakes. The, the relationships that continue to be good, the marriages that last, are when you have a disconnect, you still focus on what you say or do next, and you get through the disconnect to a better connect. So, you know, using the we and what you do next, the we comes first. Those are those are kind of laws here. There there are a couple of others, and you know, I have written. I think you you found these. I've written, I think, four laws in addition since the House of God. Uh, one is connection. You know, connection comes first. I think another is learn empathy. Uh, a third is learn your trade in the world which means everything around the patient. And uh, the, the last is, if you see something wrong, speak up. Uh, we would now like to uh, kind of move on to our next segment. Uh, we call it the tips and tricks. And uh, okay. we usually ask a surgical uh, question here and, you know, kind of get expert opinion on the management. We have you on the uh, on the show today. And I think what I really wanted to fo- focus on in this segment was w- Briefly, what advice would you like to give to the young writers and um, young doctors in medicine today who want to um, pursue um, pursue um, not just a career, but even as a hobby to um, in writing? And uh, how did you um, you kind of touched on your uh, experience and your um, difficulties with first publication and rejection? So if you can kind of talk to us about how to navigate these waters yeah well as i said the first thing i do is make sure you have a paying job very few writers can you know and this this audience will have a paying job um you know doctors are so privileged we are there at the absolute uh crucial times in patients lives and we are supposed to deal with their suffering at that time right so that the material that 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 is out there, even in you know, even in a single day of a busy doctor's life, that's a short story, maybe even a novel. You know, I, I uh, actually, you know, like many novelists, I had trouble with my second novel, and and I sort of didn't write for a long time, for you know, maybe almost a year to try to find out. I said, well, I've already got a paying job. Why do I have to, you know, have a job that I'm having trouble with? And I came up with. The only reason I write 
is because I can't not. I mean, there has to be some kind of urge because it's not that easy to really try to write and get published. But if you really feel that you want to write, then the only thing to do is keep going and find some people that will encourage you. I think, as I said, I, I'm, you know, I mean, I've written everything by now. I've, I've written, I think, six or seven novels, a play called, I don't know, people should know this play. I'll talk about it in a minute. But anyway, I don't have too many things to say. It's just, you know, observe, value your experience, and have some kind of, you have to, to do fiction, have some kind of thing that gets you to say to yourself, hey, wait a second, what is this? You know, think of the, hey, wait a second moments, and then forget about getting published. Just start to write. It has to be fun. Or else you'll drive yourself crazy. You already got a hard job. I want to, though, actually, if you don't mind, just talk about a couple of other novels. The, the, the novel that didn't get much attention because it was a different style that I would really recommend people and their spouses uh, to read is called The Spirit of the Place. And it's about a doctor who, a uh, divorced doctor who goes around the world with medicine frontier and falls in love in Europe. But then uh, he has to go back to his town when his mother dies to settle the estate and stuff. And he hates this town. But he goes back and there are certain conditions on the will and he needs money that he has to live in her house in the middle of this town for in on the Hudson River in New York State. He has to live in her house for a, continuously for a year and 13 days, and he doesn't want to stay and all that stuff. But he goes to visit the old doctor who had gotten him into medicine in the first place, and uh, he winds up staying and working with the doctor. So it's really a story about, the House of God was about how you get, learn to do it. This is about how you learn to be a doctor in the world. And uh, I'll brag a little bit. It won two National Best Novel of the Year awards when it came out about five years ago. Go to samuelshem.com, I guess, and you can see it. The other thing I wanted to mention, because it's absolutely of great importance to any doctor, is alcohol and drugs. And I was a specialist in this as a, as a psychiatrist for a long time. And my wife and I wrote a play called Bill W. and Dr. Bob which is the story of the relationship between the two men that started Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. And it's been done three times off-Broadway, and it won a national award, and it ran for a year. And the interesting thing about this book, there are two things. One, it shows how the best treatment for alcoholism and some other drugs is AA. And what this is, is very interesting. We realized as we wrote it, that the, that Bill, who was a drunk stockbroker from New York, who happened to be on a trip to Akron and met Dr. Bob Smith, who was an incorrigible drunk uh, in Akron, but they came together and they talked for six hours, and out of that meeting came the the twelve uh, step programs. But what 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 we realized was that the person that Bill, who was a lawyer, had to meet was a doctor. A doctor started this because when Bill came to Bob and met him for the first time, you know, he said something like, well, my, my doctor said that this, uh, this alcoholism may be a disease. And, and Bob chimes in and he says, a disease? What? With signs and symptoms, a course and a progression? Implying what? A treatment? So he shifted it to treatment. And what they found was that the treatment had to be attacked on physical, psychological, and spiritual, not religious. They were not religious people. Spiritual levels, physical, psychological, and spiritual levels in order to work. And that was the birth of the holistic movement in medicine in uh, 1935. So, you know, look up Shemalu. You know, there are some other books that you might want to read, but that's one that really would be very important. So our final segment here is the final five. It's for our listeners to get to know you a little more personally. So our first question for you, right on topic, do you have a favorite book or is there something that you're currently reading? Well, everything by Shakespeare. <laughs> Let's just start that. I continually, as I get older, go back to Shakespeare. You know, 1984 is amazing. 
I would also suggest even even for you know maybe maybe for doctors even Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who won the Nobel Prize for uh, 100 Years of Solitude, published a novella, a short book, which was rare for him, and it's called Of Love and Other Demons. And it is absolutely a perfect, wonderful book. And it has this doctor character who is absolutely astonishing. It's set in, you know, the 1500s in uh, Cartagena, uh, which is his hometown in Colombia. And, and actually, you know, when you're a writer, what, what you what you what you re, what you pick to read or go back to read is a book like that, which is you know perfect in all the ways that a writing has to be perfect. So I get clues from him and Shakespeare. That's awesome. All right, our second question for you: uh, What's been your favorite uh, vacation? Well, that's a little. Everything, everything about me is complicated. I, you know, what can I tell you? We uh, about ten years ago, we bought a house with some land on a mountain with a jungle, uh, two thousand feet up near the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. It's just an absolutely, you know, it's remote. There are only farmers around. Nobody speaks English. I don't go there that go there that often now. But when I go there, because, I, you know, writing and the other things I do and teaching and, uh, you know, running around giving lectures and stuff um, and talks, I talk about actually how to stay human in medicine. That's what I talk about. But uh, when I go there, even though it has my wife insisted I put in Wi-Fi, uh, when I go there, I do nothing. I don't watch anything. I, I mean, television, there's no television. I don't listen to anything. I don't write anything. And uh, all I do is I'm in, I'm in nature. It's absolutely incredible. So that's, the, that's not really a vacation. But And then the other thing is Italy. <laughs> I mean, what else? Italy has to be Italy. Have you ever been to Costa Rica? I have not, but just that feeling of being in nature and disconnecting from with your cell phone and everything is my favorite part of going on vacations. Uh, Costa Rica uh, stopped having an army in 1954, so they got money for you know national health care, et cetera. And I wrote a probably my best op-ed was in the Globe, and it, uh, it's about my being uh, having used the healthcare service there. Not being disconnected, but uh, do you listen to music? And if so, you know, what would we find on your iPod or whatever device you listen to music on? Now, here's something I want you to mention. I do not have an iPod. I do not have an iPhone. I am speaking to you from a flip phone. This flip phone is like being on vacation in Costa Rica. It does nothing except, you know, calls. And I, 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 people can text me if it's short. And I tell them, you have to text me with a question that can be either answered, since I have to go through the alphabet on the phone, you know, OK or N-O. So I don't have an iPhone. I don't have a, a, a pen. But, I, yeah, I can tell you what I listen to. I used to listen a lot. Now I don't so much because as I get older, I need more quiet in my surroundings to not be as easily distracted. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm a gomer. What can I say? The two people I love to listen to over and over again, I mean, this is shows how old I am. Dylan, who is remarkable. and and that's, you know, Dylan is one. I grew up with Dylan, you know. And the other I sort of grew up with, too, nobody's heard of, is a guy called Mississippi John Hurt, who was an, uh, uh, an old-time uh, Mississippi uh, Delta uh, blues man. So, and my favorite songs are Bob Dylan's. It's, a, it's one nobody really knows much about. Um, it was on one of the later tapes. Is Dylan's favorite song of mine is Up to Me. And Mississippi John Hurt's favorite, or my favorite song of his, is Let the Mermaids Flirt with Me. Wonderful. All right. Our next question for you. This might be a little tricky one, but what sport would you compete in uh, if you were to participate in Olympics? doesn't have to be something that you actually play. Just That's a very good question. I loved and was very successful for me, actually, uh, at basketball. I'm, I'm an insane Celtics fan. 
and I played at Harvard on the team. And at Oxford, I actually played a little bit practices anyway with the with a Rhodes Scholar who was a year ahead of me called Bill Bradley. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He he was he was on the New York Knicks back then, a pro a pro basketball player. So, but yeah, it would be basketball, no question. Of course, I've heard of Bill Bradley. I'm a huge NBA fan, so it speaks to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Um, so who would you say has been most influential on you in your career, whether it's the writing or the medicine? Influential. When I was, I think I mentioned that I, at one point, had taken this wild, you know, car trip to, uh, with a friend down to the Sahara Desert, right from, we drove right from Oxford, right down through Morocco, et cetera, the Sahara. And I wanted to get out of my PhD teaching cockroaches how to lift their legs. And so I made an excuse. I had this wonderful guy named Dennis Noble. He was my professor. He's a dear friend now. And I had to figure out a way I could get out of this effort that he put me into that was he was supervising me. And so I asked him to get a computer. And maybe I could I couldn't do my work without a computer. You know, I lied to him. It was stupid. There weren't really computers in those days. There were sort of sort of beginnings of computers. So I left and went to Morocco and I had this epiphany, you know, at a cattle at a uh, cattle auction and a olive harvest and riding through the desert. I didn't want to be a scientist, I wanted to be a writer. So I came back to Oxford and to my horror, as I tried to get into my lab, there were all these boxes. The computer had arrived. And I felt terrible. So still wearing my jalabi, which is this big, you know, thing from the Arab uh, countries, and sandals, I, I went about, I, I bought a bottle, I got back to Oxford, I bought a bottle of wine and a couple of lamb chops, showed up at his door, dripping wet, it was raining, he, he uh, opened the door, this is Dennis Noble, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist and writer. He looked at me and said, oh, and I said, Dennis, I got something. I saw the computer, but I got something to tell you. My heart was in my throat. And he said, yes. He said, I don't want to be a scientist. I want to be a writer. And he said to me, well, there, Bergman, have a sherry. <laughs> you know, he supported it. And that was just uh, a turning point, a turning point. He had faith in me. Thank you very much for joining us today. If you want to see more of Dr. Shem's writing, we'll link to his website in our show notes. Until next time, dominate the day.